That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to episode 567 with my guests Anna and Maria Duke. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. More like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Website for this show and the social media handles are MetalPod. Um, happy Thanksgiving, huh? Happy turkey. Are you one of those people that puts the, the duck inside the turkey? I think what you should do is you should have a turkey with a chicken inside it and then a duck inside the chicken and then a mint in the middle. I'm going to copyright that. Let's jump into some uh, some fears. This is from the fear survey filled out by a woman who calls herself broken and tired. She writes, I fear that I will never experience healthy romantic love. I fear that I can never trust myself to pick a healthy partner and therefore I will either continue to choose abusers adding to my PTSD or I will avoid people altogether and die wishing I was lovable. Wow. That is deep and I think so universal. Even people who are in relationships, I think. I think so many people are in loveless relationships and you just stay in because you know where you don't want to rock the boat, maybe you got kids, maybe you're afraid that you'll never find someone better or afraid you're going to hurt them. I thank you for that. This is also from this fear survey (laughs) filled out by Arbitrary Mary. Oh, I am a big fan of your work, Arbitrary Mary. Uh, She writes, I fear that the people I truly care about don't know how important they are to me despite my explicit, explicit statements 
and that because of my inability to convey my sincere appreciation of our relationship, they will eventually tire of me and unceremoniously ghost me with zero explanation, leaving me to endlessly obsess over every minuscule interaction we ever had in an attempt to learn from my failure as a friend. (laughs) That is fantastic. I hope, excuse me, <clears throat> I I really hope that, first of all, that this isn't true, and it sounds, it sounds definitely like a catastrophizing part of your brain, but um, I think it's awesome that you express that you love them. I don't think you can ever go wrong with that. This is from the Asks, Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by uh, Lego is okay. And she writes, hey, Paul, so after you've screwed up our carefully written surveys and thrown them in the trash can, do you also set it on fire? I, no, I don't. I take them to a nuclear plant and I wrap the surveys around the rods that have the the expended fissile material because that more thoroughly makes sure that these are wiped off the face of the earth and honestly i love handling rods any kind of rod but especially one that's packed with uh, expired uranium uh Also, are you working on a book including some surveys? I remember a while back you mentioned it. That is kind of on hold. It's one of the reasons why I I took... I I think I'm going to crunch that paper a little louder. I uh, took the uh, surveys, uh, being able to read them off of the website because uh, I keep putting off doing this. I want people to be able to, if they choose, uh, to put their email address on the surveys so that if I do include them in a book, I could contact them if I have any questions. But I've not gotten around to that. It's on my it's on my to-do list, which uh, is experiencing a beautiful anniversary. This is from the Fear survey filled out by You're a Good Man, Bobby. And uh, she writes, I fear life. I fear living. I'm terrified of occupying space and being seen. I'm scared that one day I'll disappear and no one will notice. I'm a living ghost. Wow. Wow. I can kind of relate to that one because for a lot of my life, I had a fear that my life will be forgettable. And I, I, when I got into a support group and started doing some work, I saw how that fear was at the, the core of everything, that I thought my safety in life would depend on me being regarded as exceptional. And then I wondered why I felt so separate and lonely <laughs> as I was actively trying to distance myself from other people and stand out. Who knew that the place to be is is one of many? This is from the fear survey filled out by one cool cat. And she writes, my biggest fear is being raped. 
gas station bathrooms in particular feel unsafe to me and I try to avoid them as much as possible. I have a recurring fear, almost more like an OCD thought that I've had for years, that when I open the stall in a public restroom, there will be a dead body in there and God forbid it will still be sitting up straight with its eyes open so it will look like it's looking at me. Wow. That is so specific. I'm also afraid of bodies of water with the exception of bathtubs and swimming pools. I worry I'll either drown or that some creepy creature will pull me down under the water. I've had nightmares about being murdered by giant squid. Not sure where my fear of water comes from. Thank you for those. Yeah, I definitely relate to the, uh, when I'm in a body of water, more more the fear that I'm going to step on something that's going to grab me or hurt me. This is from the fear survey filled out by Chloe. She writes, I fear that we are going to go into a famine. The government is already controlling our supply chain. I fear that when we do go into famine slash desperate times, my child will suffer. I often think of the best way to kill me and my child pain-free, just so that when the famine hits, we don't suffer. This is an absolute last-ditch choice I would make. Wow. Wow. I mean, shit is fucked up out there, but who am I I kidding? I have this same fear, but mine is more about a water shortage. We are sponsored this week, as always, by BetterHelp.com Online Counseling. Uh, If you've never tried online counseling, uh, I am am a big fan of not having to leave my house. They have uh, qualified therapists who've been vetted. You can request uh, expertise in a particular area. If they have a counselor that they feel is a good fit for you, uh, they'll match you up with one. Uh, And and if it's not the right chemistry, you can switch counselors. And uh, I think that's a really important thing because there, there is a certain chemistry aspect to counselors. Somebody may be a great counselor, but they and the and, and the client they just don't uh, don't necessarily click but uh they're available in all 50 states uh they're licensed in that state and uh betterhelp.com is actually available globally uh, worldwide so you can get started in under 48 hours and uh i highly recommend it so if you're interested go to betterhelp that's h e l p dot com slash mental and uh, make sure you include the slash mental part so that they know you came from this podcast and then you can get the ball rolling and uh, you can get 10% off your first month of counseling. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? 
What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And then finally, this is from the Awfulsome Moment uh, survey. And these are some Awfulsome Moments filled out by a guy who calls himself hottest tuba player ever. Uh, I missed the voting for that, but uh, next time it comes around, I'm definitely going to weigh in. He writes, I've spent most of my 47 years on earth obsessed with food, more specifically, all the fun foods that doctors tell you to avoid. When I learned to make a grilled cheese sandwich as a kid, it was like I was given the map to Xanadu. I've eaten at McDonald's or Burger King, then made the 12-minute drive to another location just to order the same thing. I've broken into locked rooms that I knew held someone's stash of cookies or chocolate bars. One of my most embarrassing memories is the time my cousin caught me in his kitchen at 3 a.m. trying to open a can of ravioli without a can opener. I just wanted to get the fuck away from my life. You know, I couldn't have felt any lower. Grief, guilt, shame. Why wasn't I born a girl? There's a switch that gets flipped in my head. I'm supposed to be a girl. I experience being treated like an animal. How can a just God... I have a vomit fetish. Let humans do this to each other. Help! I fucking flew over the cuckoo's nest. My wife's losing it. I thought it was all about me. I don't know what to do. I would have committed suicide if I could have watched my funeral. A Polaroid I found of my mother um, naked in a dentist chair. And my body doesn't quite... I think I did eight days in L.A. County Jail. ...fit how I see myself. What was it all for? Why are my friends dead? Everything that I did, there's a comfort in the scars for me, was in service of OCD. You've already had all the paper cuts. Step away from the paper. It's really hard to see the picture when you're inside the frame. You know, it takes a larger view to see your life. Just actually have somebody listen to you. Yeah. And I got up and got my tooth and left. (laughs) I am here with Anna and Maria Duke, who are uh, identical twins. You guys also do a podcast called Bipolar by Coastal? Oh, nailed it. Yes. Yes. That's what I wanted to do. You reached out to me and asked if I'd ever done a show about identical twins and mental illness. I I recorded the Sklar Brothers Mm -hmm. years ago. But there was no real uh, identified mental illness other than uh, uh, being comedians, which is a waste. mental illness yeah. in <laughs> and of itself. Um, one of the big ones. <laughs> uh, codependency, also an issue, uh, you said, with you, yeah, with yeah. you guys. Well, because I was listening to your um, interview with the, with the woman from Co-Pandemi, and you were asking her about being like um, uh, like a how 
codependency show up with her and her fraternal sister mm-hmm. and she said not really and i was like it definitely did for us so yeah for sure <laughs> yeah especially yeah uh so where do we begin you guys were raised uh first of all let me ask are you comfortable saying how old you are oh yeah yes. sure yeah we're we just 27. turned 27 in june yeah so oh. a few months ago uh and where were you raised so we were raised in maryland in a suburb outside of dc uh yeah for like called gaithersburg if anyone's from maryland yeah, and so we were there up until we went to college, so the whole time. In yeah. the same little neighborhood, like a very, um, not a gated neighborhood, but like whatever step below that is, like a very like cute we, little yeah. like planned development. Unlocked at night. Yeah, stuff like gotcha, that. Yeah, gotcha. yeah. Which it does certainly contribute to somebody's sense of safety in the, in the world. Totally. It, it, it is... Uh, you know, when I see people that were raised with bars on the windows and mm-hmm. robberies all around them, I think that's got, got to inform yeah, the way that you view totally. the world and people and or people who were raised with a parent who was a predator or abusive. Mm-hmm. Yes. So what was, uh, give me some snapshots from childhood that, that kind of uh, you feel, paint, paints a picture for. Yeah, so our parents... Uh, were married up until we were 12 but not a happy marriage like I can't really remember my parents our parents ever kissing or anything like that like I just don't really remember that um and so then they got divorced when we were 12 in middle school and my dad moved pretty far away to like a another suburb Suburb of of DC DC. Bethesda um did he work in politics no, no our mom is a lawyer and our dad was a public school teacher okay um and still is yeah so yeah yeah they moved to maryland for our mom's job um yeah so go ahead i cut you off oh yeah no problem so yeah so it wasn't we were like very yeah closer i guess you could say like codependent um growing up and so we have an older sister as well the two of you you mean yeah yes yeah and so my mom had like pretty bad anxiety and my dad our dad had like anger issues so yeah so once our parents got divorced our older sister lived with our mom full-time and we would go back and forth like a really complicated custody schedule so it was just like really tumultuous from that point forward and before that I mean there was never stable our childhood was never ever stable in the way you think like I've had therapists who think that there must have been like an addict in the family because Mm -hmm. of how we react and relate to things um well you know to me anger is a drug yeah indignation to me is a drug i'm sure you know people maybe even a parent that just they will get something under their craw and they will just go on and on and on Mm -hmm. about it and that there is something addictive about being outraged or incensed yeah Yeah. and when you're a kid like managing those emotions and that's where like the codependency stuff kind of started i think it's just seeing like what the whenever you have to like read the temperature of the room before you enter it Mm -hmm. you know that's a really bad lesson for who I do think. I need to be to survive? Yeah, it's a bad lesson for kids to learn, obviously. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, that was kind of what it was. It's just trying to figure out if it was a good day or a bad day in the house. Um, yeah, and like I remember when we were—I don't remember how old we were, but it must have been late elementary school because our, our parents were like arguing a lot. Um, and, and there was openly. like openly, and there was one year. Do you remember what what in particular they would argue about? anything it's actually kind of strange because 
we were young enough when it happened that no one really explained to us what was going on. Yeah, no one, we never actually, the way that we found out that they were getting divorced is we were all on a family vacation without our dad that summer. And, which was weird. Which was unusual. Um, but things had gotten so bad it wasn't surprising uh, with our mom part of the family. And our mom and our older sister went home when they were supposed to, and we stayed with that side of the family for an extra week or so. Mm-hmm. And when we came back, our mom and our grandparents picked us up, and her parents picked us up from the airport and took us to a hotel. And that's how, And but there was never like them sitting us down and being like, you, you know, like your father and I are getting divorced. Really? Not, we still nothing. love each other, or we still we love, love you. you guys. Yeah. No, nothing like that. Were, were <laughs> you guys ever used kind of a, a, as pawns and them trying to get back at each other or get leverage? It's uh, hard to say if it was leverage, but they weren't, in my opinion, they weren't as shy about um bad-mouthing each other as they should have been despite us not really knowing why exactly they got divorced so like did you ever ask them or you just kind of uh, we're like the family where it's just an unwritten rule you don't bring up certain things i mean i mean it's clear that they hated each other like so it it wasn't like yeah but we're like um like wasps so like white anglo-saxon protestants like we grew up episcopalian so like feelings weren't like really ever openly discussed and i think our older sister knew more she was three years older. So I think she knew more than we did. But yeah, we would I I've asked my mom now and she sort of explained more. I think it just like wasn't a great fit for the two of them. Um and like we're a lot closer to our dad now than we were at the time. But yeah, like we would go out to like there's one time we went to like an Indian restaurant with my dad and like it just like so many dinners where we just like leave crying. Like <laughs> yeah, so many. for no like for and like calling the other parent like manipulative or like that my dad certainly felt like you know what they did actually yeah. do in terms of using us as pawns um so our older sister never went back and forth she opted out of seeing our father like she just yeah. only sees him like on holidays now and they're at, again much closer relationship now than they have before but she just opted out so we were the ones going back and forth because in maryland you can at like the age of what was she 16 at least at least as far as we new yeah and but what they would do is like when we were in high school especially they my dad moved further away so like a like a 25 30 minute car ride away and um what they would do is blame each other for who had to like who was responsible for bringing us back and forth so it it was never clear like who was like actually in charge of if it was if the parent dropping off or the parent picking up was supposed to be making the trip, but they would tell like, us yeah. like, you're, like if your other parent cared, they would have done this for you. Basically, but somebody yeah. should create a TV show <laughs> where the the child of divorce is the judge, yes. and then yeah, totally parents who are arguing come before a yeah. kid. Yeah, and there's like some. Sort of or a panel of kids, you yeah. know, a jury of, of kids. <laughs> totally. Yeah, we're like the adults are acting like children and the children are acting like adults. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, so give, give me uh, some some snapshots, some moments. You've given me a, a, a couple. Yeah. So I remember. Um, so, OK, so I was really focused on getting my license so that we could solve. This is the, Maria. Like, yeah, Maria. <laughs> I was really focused on getting my license so that we could solve the going back and forth thing and like just kind of be able I could just do it myself um and so when I was 16 I went in for my driver's test and in 
Maryland at the time, and I think still like no, it's actually less hard now. Okay, so you would have to do like, you know, parallel park back into a space, all, three point turn, three point, yeah, that was yeah, yeah, back into a space, and then you would have to go on the road, and so the test took like twice as long as it was supposed to, or like than it had like the year before, so they were like really backed up. Anyway, so I went to the DMV, finally got an appointment, went to the um, DMV and took the test and failed. And I was like so upset because the only appointment I could get next was three months later. So I just like cried the whole car ride home. Um, And then I finally got my license like after the summer was over, so like six months later. And um, there was like an earthquake that year, which was like very unusual. In Maryland? In Maryland. Yeah. There's been a yeah. few. And it was the it's fo- actually just one in Baltimore um, really? in the past two months. Yeah, yeah. So, and it was like the one, if people remember that, like the National Monument, or the Washington Monument got like cracked and like the National Cathedral and stuff. Um, and so, I, but I had never been in an earthquake before, uh, the Netherlands in California I have. And so the car started shaking. I was like, oh, sh-. like as I like pulled in, I was like, oh, shit, like I did something wrong to the car. Right. Like I like put it in like a weird gear. And now I'm not going to get my license. Um, and the oh, driver you taking the, your test it was right as i pulled oh, back I to the dmv after that. it and i was like oh i fa- passed and then it was like no you didn't i was like or i like thought in my head like maybe i didn't and then he was like no you you did like you're fine it was an earthquake okay. this is really weird and i was like oh okay and i was like so excited um yeah and then because because like learning how to drive was really stressful because neither parent wanted to do mm-hmm. it with us so i, I probably got like 40 road hours before then which is like you're supposed to get a lot more but yeah that was one and growing up I remember and I used to like hide in our closet a lot like when our parents would fight or like when our dad was angry um and like it's really going back to our childhood closet like when we were selling or when our dad was selling the house we had like all this like stuff written on the walls like about about, yeah about like I just want things to get better and I like I hope that thing so we were just like really attached at the hip like we went to a bunch of different summer camps in elementary school and we would like only talk to each other yeah, like we hide, didn't make friends hide during dodgeball just like really like shy anxious kids basically do, do you remember any conversations when you guys were hiding uh, between Was each other us? yeah um I think that we would like mostly? sing to each other yeah yeah. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah, that's kind of sweet. Yeah. yeah. And I remember, too, like, in terms of just a story from childhood, just to show how anxious I was, um, my biggest fears in life were always death, which, mm-hmm. bummer, that's going to happen. That's right. going to happen. And mental illness. I never wanted to be, like, to not be aware of reality or, like, out of control in that way, obviously. The traumatic irony. Right? <laughs> Yeah. Both of those, one of them already happened. One of them is definitely going to happen at some point. Yeah. Um. But I was so anxious as a kid. We went to an Episcopalian school from when we were three to when we were 13. And then we transitioned to a huge public high school. But when I was about nine or so, my mom took me to like the church, the school pastor, uh, reverend, because I was so afraid of death. And I like couldn't stop thinking about it. And she was like, we got to get something else happening. Right. Like she needs to talk to someone. Yeah. Um, and they just told me like, oh, you know, people have had near death experiences, like seeing the light um, and uh, that's heaven or whatever. And I was like, OK, right. kind of convincing, kind of not. But yeah. I guess I'll just stop right. talking about it now kind of thing. Yeah. So so who's uh, bipolar presented itself first? That would be me, Anna. Um, yeah. So 
How I, old were you? Sorry? How old were you when it presented itself? Oh, yes. I was 22. Um, well, it, it's kind of hard with bipolar. So the mania was when I was 22. The depression started in high school, although it wasn't so much diagnosed or labeled that way. I just thought I was a lazy piece of shit. Um, and a girl. Yeah. <laughs> good uh, self-talk. It's yeah. Yeah, Right on healthy. schedule. <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally. Yeah. And so like in and out of college, I'd have like these semesters where just I would fail classes or it, it just nothing got done and was very good at like masking the mood part of it, but not so much like the motivation part of it. Although I did lie a lot about like what I was and wasn't doing in terms of schoolwork, which was also really good. Um, and when yeah. I was, they love that when you're on academic probation. They're like, yes, yes, queen. I about it. Yeah, I was. Did you guys go to the same college? We started. At, I really wanted to leave. <laughs> like I did not want to be around my family after high school. I felt like so much of our childhood and adolescent had been defined by their dysfunction. When we were in high school, we were the only people that we knew with divorced parents somehow. Like, I don't know what we did. That's pretty shocking for your yeah, generation. Yeah, and then we were in our tiny middle school with 18 kids, besides, with, including us. We, our best friends' parents were divorcing at the same time. Like, our it was childhood bullies' parents were divorcing. Yeah, no, no, actually it was a different, a different guy. Kids. Yeah. yeah, but we, like, there were like four kids of divorced parents out of 18. And then we got to a school of 2,000 out of the 150 kids in our, like, magnet program it was us and one other guy who had divorced parents and we weren't friends with that guy and the and the one girl and the one yeah and the one girl yeah. so it was really different and you know we like there were so many times where we were like waiting after that that was another big thing in our childhood was like waiting around for our dad to pick us up from places like when we were in elementary school the last day of school we were in i think fourth grade we were there for like an hour and a half after everyone else left, just reading in some teacher's classroom. And they were like, is your dad coming? Like, do you know? And we're like, yeah, this is before cell phones. He's supposed to be like, you know, we called the home phone and he said like, he, no one picked up, but he's supposed to be kind of thing. And it was like a lot of us trying to just hide how dysfunctional that kind of stuff was. So when yeah. things like that happened, it was like, God, like the teachers know, like everyone knows that this is happening. Or this one basketball practice. We were there in the dark after everyone left for again like an like an hour waiting for yeah. our dad to come and we called him and he's like yep I'm, I'm about to leave and we're like okay well 45 minutes later like what's happening so yeah um anyways or like one time we like we had to bring like suitcases to school to like do custody stuff like switch yeah. over like it was just it was always so embarrassing to us that yeah, yeah. our family was like not functional and not even like the fun not like the fun divorce, but like the functional divorce where like the parents talk to each other. Right. Our it was parents, so acrimonious. Even when Anna was ma hospitalized for mania, our parents didn't, didn't talk to each other. Yeah. Like they just like wow. didn't yeah. Yeah. overlap. So so talk about the mania. Yeah. You were yes. 22. Okay. Yes, going back to that. So I so in the spring of 2016, um, when we when I was 21, our mentor, like our beloved professor and mentor passed away I was working on my thesis with him at college and he had cancer and he got sicker and sicker and then he passed by the end of that semester so I was had a horrible summer got into this really bad relationship and um by that fall I was back on campus for my fifth year of college by myself I knew like one other person um and was just 
incredibly depressed. And so finally, I was like, you know what? Maybe we should do something about this. And so I got onto Zoloft. Um, which is an SSRI inhibitor. Yeah, which is important for bipolar. Um, and my psychiatrist prescribed it to me and then did just zero follow-up appointments. So it worked. I became less depressed. And then two or three months into taking it, um, I started taking it in like October. By December, January, I was manic. And no one in our family has been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. I was the first. Yeah. <laughs> A real trailblazer. Um, and my mom was like, you don't seem well. I was back home for winter break and I was talking really fast. I was making all of these grandiose plans. I was writing letters to all of my friends at like 3 a.m. in the morning. And my mom like came in and was like, what are you doing? And I was like, I just got to finish this. And she was like, I don't think you do have to finish this yeah. right now. Like. And Marie and I did. Do you know like the book, like the life changing magic of tidying up, like Marie Kondo? Oh, like uh, I know who she is, and okay. I kind of know the general gist. Yeah, that was yeah. like really big. Get then. rid of anything that doesn't bring you joy. Yes, yeah. and so Maria, bless her heart, like we were doing that, and we were staying up until like two a.m. Like, and were you kind of dragging her stuff. along? We feed off each other, yeah. so we were both excited about it, but I don't think we would have stayed up as late or done it or as thrown out as much of stuff that we, like... We threw our yearbooks. I mean, just, like, stuff that I really would like to have now. <laughs> so, so dumb. And, <laughs> and anyways, so my mom was like, this seems wrong, and she took me back to the psychiatrist who was like, yeah, you're right, this does seem not great. Um, but she didn't give me anything very fast acting for it so she gave me i think lithium which is what i'm on now but it's not like something that will like, well, just turn it for you if you're in a cute and that kind of tamps down the crisis. highs uh, yeah it's, it's a mood stabilizer, stabilizer. so right. it's for both it's for both depression and mania just I got you. leveling it out and it's like a long-term thing yeah yeah so she arrived that went back home i started like safety planning so i was like <laughs> really aggressively like yeah anything in our on that floor of the house that had like chemicals in it like Bleach. mouthwash and stuff like that. i just put it all into like the sinks not even in a trash can but i just took oh, it out of the so cabinet it's so weird i know very unsettling yeah. i took it out of like the cabinet I, I put like razors and stuff in there and i was Scissors, like keep this away from me lighters. i took like i tied up the blinds in my room like the knots and i like pushed my bed in front of the window and i like cleared out my closet you were still child. manic at this point? Oh, yeah. yeah Full, extremely like, manic. Really in, Very in paranoid. I, and I was like, I, I don't want to hurt myself, but I'm afraid if I do decide to hurt myself, like what I'll do, basically. And I just like, wanted to sit in my closet <laughs> and be safe. But I also... Ooh, a parallel. <laughs> but also, I know. But I also wanted... Um, and like... I just like bring myself down basically. But I also wanted Maria to grab our passports, birth certificates, social security cards... And, like, get us out of our mom's house and drive us away because I was convinced that she didn't have our best interests at heart. Another Be parallel. I know. Because <laughs> our because our um, stepfather had, like, I had been going into the attic to, like, find artwork to, like, decorate my room because I was like, I need to get my room done. Like, that's mm -hmm. important. And it's weird. So weird. And I found these, like, two vintage, like, guns. And I was like, Mom, like, you knew I was depressed. You know the most... Oh, uh, trigger warning. You know, the most effective way of killing yourself is with a firearm. How dare you keep those in the house? You're choosing him over me. Mm -hmm. She wasn't. They weren't loaded. I couldn't have right. done anything. They were hidden. Um, and she 
maintains that I knew about them beforehand, which she's probably right about. But when you're manic, your memory is so either hyper clear or just nothing. Off, yeah. And so I was like, Maria, mom is choosing her husband over us. We got to get out of here. Um, and Maria's like, this is not great. Yeah. Meanwhile, the whole time I was like, when, when do we go to the hospital? Like when yeah. does this end? Yeah. Yeah. And, and were you diagnosed uh, at that point with bipolar one or bipolar two, or they didn't know, or it didn't matter? So we, a, we a, knew it was bipolar. We knew it was bipolar, but it, once I got to the hospital, I think they diagnosed bipolar one. So at the end of, so Maria ended up calling NAMI, the crisis hotline, who told National her, Alliance of Mental Illness. Yes. Yeah. Great, who, great organization. Yeah. Yes, and although this is the thing about crisis hotlines, they're really big into um, most a lot of them, like active rescue and stuff like that, like police involvement, which mm-hmm. is what ended up happening. She called 911, thought an ambulance would come. Instead, like four to six cops came. And I was like, <laughs> sorry, this is like kind of hard to talk about. So I, at that point, was like out of like, I was pissed. I was like the fact that you guys called them and when they were on their way and I had like taken off all my clothes, like sensory wise, it was like not a thing that I wanted to like have fabric on me and like naked. Yeah, yes, completely fully. naked. Yeah. And my like then boyfriend, I was I was like, no one come in here. No one come into my room. I'm safe. I like did all those safety footing stuff, but like I don't want anyone to come in. Um, Sucked. Yeah, I was like kicking holes in the wall of the closet and stuff like that, which is. And so he came in. Tried Very to... primitive way of redecorating. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Not rec- Marie Kondo frowns yeah. on using your foot to yeah, redecorate. These walls are not bringing me joy. Yes. They got to yes. go. Yeah. <laughs> and he came in, tried to restrain me. And I. Who's he? My then boyfriend. Okay. And I had told him not to come in, and he did. And I, he had like a bad knee, and like I still feel so guilty about this. And I like intentionally kicked him in it to get him off of me and like make him go away. Which he he left, and then Maria came in. I didn't hurt her in any way because I would never hurt her. And she was like, "You got she was like you got to put clothes on." Like the cops are like the cops heard to take me when I was naked. She's like, "Give us a second. Like please let her put clothes on." So an extraordinary amount, right, of like white privilege that I was not honestly killed at this point because then the cops came in. I was kicking, screaming. They handcuffed me, carried me down the stairs, tried to force me into a squad car because I was still resisting. And that's when I like went limp and they took me in the back of an ambulance with Maria to the hospital. Yeah. Um, if I had not been living in like a wealthy neighborhood or if I hadn't had like my white family around me to like. I just like I think a lot about this like for both of us like if we're ever like on the street somewhere having like a mental health crisis like what happens then yeah. um anyways and, and definitely different different <laughs> scenarios if you're a person of color exactly or a yeah yeah or, yeah or even I think if we were male. men probably too right or like larger yeah, yeah like more of a physical what they perceive as like exactly the yeah. that. I mean they the cops shouldn't be there regardless right it, was why why <laughs> we don't create some type of governmental service Listen, that oh isn't God, the cops yeah. and i think the cops would happily 
Oh happily. my god. They hate mentally ill people, right? Well, <laughs> I know that they, they yeah. feel yeah. that it's probably not a great fit for them and yeah, that there are totally. other things that they are better Could equipped be to do. Because yeah. I, I would imagine quite a few of them do have compassion, but totally. they are not trained and equipped to deal. Uh, there might be some training going on now in some places, but still, yeah. it's the the message you're sending to that person who is in crisis is you've done something wrong. Oh totally. yeah, oh yeah. And, and it the, was, the tools that they have are the, at their disposal are literally just like put them in prison or put them in a hospital. Like they don't have anything else. Yeah, there are some places like I know up in um, somewhere in the Pacific Northwest. There's like a program called Cahoots, which is like a mobile crisis unit. That can come out. The problem is, though, I think even even with those things, for me, since I was violent, they would have called the cops regardless. I don't think yeah. they would have been able. It's not like I was trying to hurt myself. I was trying to hurt others. So, it's yeah, it's, it is such a bad system that we have for dealing with it. I don't even. Right. If someone has like a broken knee, you're not going to be like, oh, like put the cops there to like help right. with that situation. It's right. like. They're not I mean, doctors. It, it certainly does yeah. complicate it when the person is violent, and I don't yeah. know what the answer is to that. I, I'm yeah. just thinking from the point of view of the person that is suffering, what, oh, is, yeah. what is best for them? And, and it's it, not that. And having, you know, getting shoved yeah. into a squad car d- doesn't <laughs> seem like the yeah. the best reinforcement for that person yeah. to right. want to continue to get help. For, right, exactly. For like a month months afterwards every time i saw a cop i always have a panic attack and even i mean even so now it really does like it's like a visceral thing where i'm like they just like scare me so much because of that yeah um, do you remember their attitude towards you they were really antagonistic yeah, yeah they were they were re- i it was like, late yelling. at night they didn't really i i mean yeah i mean i felt really guilty about the whole thing i why well because i was the one okay so like Back to like Anne and I being, we, we always would say like growing up like we're family, like we're each other's like family, the two of family. you, just the two yeah, of just us. the two of us, and like yeah, because we were always together, right? Because none of our other family was always in the same, was ever in the same place. Mm-hmm. Um, after yeah, eleven, yeah, and um, anyway, so like during her whole like mental health, I mean, when she was depressed, I was like the person who not was managing her care, but was like kind of like acting as like translator to the rest of our family because they didn't have any experience with it um and then when anna was manic i was again like the person who was me which i wanted the person who was like mediating between the rest of our family so like anna was like if maria earlier in the manic episode she's like if maria thinks, thinks i should I go should, to the hospital I'll go to the then hospital. i'll go to the hospital and by that point i was like i'm not going to the hospital but earlier i had said that mm-hmm. yeah and when i called for an ambulance i thought that they were just gonna send an ambulance but they sent the cops and like um black lives matter was like going on at that point and stuff too so I, anyways and i i was i'm still and was like pretty anti um police force in general but um so i just felt really guilty because i was the one who called it and then anna was like traumatized from it so it felt really really crappy yeah yeah and the fact that she was the one in the back of the ambulance with me instead of my mom like my mom was yeah. there but it's like maria yeah, we yeah, just like really we look out yeah like always looked out for each other so and yeah. so then were you hospitalized yeah apparently it was voluntary i don't remember signing anything but apparently i for for years now i've been like involuntary and, and my mom was like listening to an episode and she's like you know it was actually voluntary right and i was like i i didn't but I will, i'll switch it now it was voluntary i just don't remember signing it 
I was put into the hospital. They put me in like a holding room. And for a while I was having like visitors come in and out while they were like sorting through things. Um, it was like the mental illness holding room of um, a hospital and the same hospital we were born in actually was where I was felt very full circle. Um, yeah. And then it stopped because there was a guy, a black man having like standing in a hallway, uh, like yelling. And apparently that meant the whole operation had to stop. There was like 20 security and hospital staff lining either under the hallway around him. It's like a huge overreaction to someone who was just yelling and mentally ill you and know you're you, you believe that him being a person of yes. color uh and the reason why i believe this is in so when they did that i was like what the heck is going on like i want someone to tell me what's going on but no one will speak to me because like this big thing is happening um so i like threw a chair against the wall and then they came in and like restrained me and yeah. handcuffed me again and then they explained what was happening but th- it wasn't like i threw a chair and like and then they like twenty security, security guards sure. came in. It was just one person who was like, "You need to stop yeah. doing that." Like, it came with a Cinnabon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They were yeah. so accommodating. Yeah. So nice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you feel that being hospitalized helped your care at all? Helped give you clarity? Was it just a totally negative experience? Is it just foggy? It parts of it are really hyper clear. Parts of it I have just zero memory of. I was there for about a week, and there was a payphone um, that we could call people from. I was put into the highest security ward because I had been violent when I came in. Highest security ward in one of the. It turns out we found out later one of the worst hospitals to like put into in Maryland for mental health. Like people, yeah. whenever I tell people what a hospital I was in. They're like, oh, God. And I'm like, yeah, I know. It was really bad. The DVD player was broken. So instead of watching, like, fun movies, we watched the news the whole time. And it was, like, right when Trump That'll was That'll calm getting, you down. Yeah, Trump was being inaugurated and, mm. and stuff like that. Um, yeah. I was – most people in my unit were, like, either, like, catatonic or, like, having psychosis, delusions. And I was, like, just manic, like, just very – annoying I think to hospital staff I asked a lot of questions I was clearly someone who hadn't been in and out of the system a bunch of times so I like had I was more aware of like what was going on and I'd have more questions for them and like I remember the first day I got in there I didn't have my glasses so I couldn't see the clock and so I kept asking them what time what time it was I was like freaking (laughs) out and they got really pissed at me they got mad at me for um, like drying my clothes too often. I would do this thing where I would like make my like warm my clothes up as a little treat for myself in the hospital, like your small comforts. They got mad at me for giving away clothes to people. Um, they just got really frustrated with me, I think. So, <laughs> and such so a security ward, like we didn't do like arts and crafts. Like my arts and crafts was just tearing out pages of magazines, and then this is a scrapbook, kind of like it's just a bunch of magazine pages, like IKEA catalog. But then I was put into a partial hospitalization program, and that I think the hospital is very helpful for the diagnosis and getting my like meds 
like getting me onto medication you had to take it and i wanted to stop being manic which is mm -hmm. unusual most people yeah there's enjoy a, their mania yeah i was terrified until, like, until it's gone and you look at your credit card yeah totally yeah yeah, yeah part of yeah part of what like landing me in the hospital was i really like, went to michael's and put like 300 dollars in craft supplies and Maria was like, don't open any of this. Like, <laughs> like, you're not allowed to open this. I like hid it from her. Yeah. Like, we're going to return it. Like, yeah. So dumb. Um, and then the partial hospitalization program was like more fun. And I was, again, the only manic person. It's a bunch of depressed people. And then one woman who was a vet who became manic over the course of two weeks because the VA could not get, did not get her meds to her in time. And that was really depressing to see someone go from like fine to not fine mm -hmm. because of like our system there's a guy in there who was bankrupt from being manic and was now depressed i mean what a horrible <laughs> what a horrible cycle to go from like mania and like make all these problems and then go to depressed and like yeah. be like yeah. terrible at solving problems and like yeah. also have like created such huge ones for yourself i really think there should be a rule about like a law being like if you spend money while mentally like ill, you aren't liable for paying off the debts. But uh, good luck yeah. getting that. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> I once uh, I didn't recognize it as mania at the time, but I spent thirty five thousand dollars on domain names. No, and this oh was God. like nineteen ninety seven, ninety eight, when they were seventy no. bucks a pop, oh, and gosh. was like you know just till four in the morning just. One at a time, all these names that I thought were going to be worth so much money and just ridiculous. Do you remember? Awful names. Oh, God. <laughs> Too embarrassing. You know, <laughs> a lot of them had to do with, I don't know, I was somehow focused on um, that's when radio was bigger oh, and yeah. people would sell like jokes to uh, multiple radio stations. It was called a radio show prep. Oh. I had a bunch around that, you know, like dot net <laughs> as if somebody was even, you know, yeah. hi, I would get a version of it with the hyphens between right, all the right, words. Right, right. Uh, this one's really embarrassing, but uh, old people com <laughs> and old people dot net. I feel like those yes. ones could have And that's not even them. a thing that I enjoy. <laughs> I was just like, oh, I bet people like this. Did that 400 one, domain names. Did that one appreciate in value? 400. What's that? Did that one appreciate no. in value? <laughs> no. Did, it was awful. I actually bought a few domain names when I was hypomanic as well. Did like, you? Yeah. Well, I was like, I'm going to start a podcast, um, which mm. I didn't really. Um, but I was like, and I, what was, I forgot, uh, I forgot what it was, too. Perfectly queer oh yeah something to do with queer it was our two friends who are not straight and mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> and so you wanted to reserve a domain name yeah. for them yeah yes. for the for the podcast that was upcoming yeah. Yeah. she yeah. used air quotes yeah. yeah it never happened that one never happened so maria what was it like inside your skin dur during all of the struggles that anna was oh, it having? was so stressful for me um i felt really guilty like survivor's guilt kind of like why did it happen to her and little did you know me oh my, God. my time was coming you. my time was coming yeah. yeah um yeah and it was like uh because because uh me like mania is like a really like you get really like aggressive most people At get really aggressive did. during yeah. it yeah and so you feel like everybody's holding you back yes. like they just don't get it totally. exactly yeah that's a great way to describe and it. you're just if you could just listen to me for like 30 more seconds if i could right. scream at you you could you'll understand what i'm saying exactly it, it, yeah the the level of frustration between <laughs> both parties 
is so high tr- trying totally. to deal with somebody who is manic. You, it's yeah. like trying to reason with somebody who's drunk. There's oh, just oh, yeah. oh, yes. they aren't just on a different plane yeah. in totally. that moment, and logic does not apply. No, totally. And that was the first time that we really hadn't been on the same page in our whole lives. So it was right. really stressful for me. And the person Ooh. who I would normally have like relied on was her, and like she was like not able to like obviously support anybody else at that time sorry yeah, a few times with like with dating we've been that's been, like, sure average, but sure. yeah that's the codependency stuff too like if we start dating another person it's really hard it was really hard we're better now to like not feel threatened or replaced or resentful towards mm-hmm. the, the time taken yeah. away but anyways so yeah so it was really really uncomfortable for me and like I missed a lot of work going to the hospital and I like like the the night that I um that Anna was hospitalized like obviously I, I went in the ambulance with her and I was there until like two in the morning and then the next day I had to be on set for like a shoot and it was my first shoot um it was for a uh it was for a video for the production company I was working for at the time and it was my first shoot um out of college so I was like so excited about it um or one of my first shoots and then it and then I like got to set and I was just like completely like despondent and miserable and tired and like I didn't want to explain to anybody like what had happened and I wasn't mm-hmm. telling anybody because like there's like a lot of shame and stigma around bipolar disorder still and so I hadn't like told anybody what was going on and I was just like my sister's in the hospital like she's she's going through something like she she's sick or whatever and so yeah that was like a really awful day for me and I remember my um producer she was like trying to distract me and was like oh like how many words can you like type on your phone without looking and stuff like that and just trying to like cheer me up but yeah I just kept like missing work doing like really poorly at it and then in like my friendships that was really stressful too because um almost all of my friends at that point were also friends with Anna so it was just like really hard to balance i was going to the hospital like all, all the time and did they know the details of what was going on um one of them actually i think was there when anna was hospitalized yeah, was. so she knew i had also called a lot of them when i was yeah in the hospital. i was like you need to come here like you need to fly over if you're not in the state because yeah. i'm going through something i was also convinced well i guess i was i was technically and i like became engaged when i was manic to that really bad ex-boyfriends I was calling air, air quotes engaged yeah air quotes en- I mean I guess technically yes but mm-hmm. under like at big asterisks obviously and I was calling all of them to tell them I was engaged and then they were like what is going on with Anna and Maria was fielding a lot of those questions yeah and I really hated the guy that she was dating at the time yeah um, Alan. so it was really like I had to deal with him he wanted to go to the hospital and like I was really pissed at him for like even indulging the engaging engagement thing I just mad at how everyone was handling it. I yeah. thought that everyone was being really kind of self-centered and not taking either taking it way too seriously and like not not being kind of like like they were the ones who needed at that mm-hmm. point they were the ones who kind of like needed to be comforted. Um yeah, I just felt really responsible for everything, I guess. And there was a just it was just a really it was almost harder when Anna got out of the hospital because then yeah. we were living in the same place and I had to go to work and Anna was like, really, she was like, I can't believe you're going to work. Like you're choosing, you're choosing it over me or like I would go to a friend's house and like understandably Anna was hurt by that. But I just like didn't have any, there was just like no space for myself at the time. Like yeah. I just, 
Yeah. And, and is that something that you guys feel like you have a better perspective on nowadays about having the need for some independence? Totally. Yes. I mean, yeah, Anna lives in Baltimore now. I live in Los Angeles. And I think as you get like before, um, before I went to college, like every single dream I had, Anna was in it. Yeah. Like same. every single dream. So that's just like a level of closeness or just mm-hmm. like, re- like, um, like linkedness that I enmeshment maybe that you can't really sustain once you start like dating or like being your own person jobs or like having we had like almost all we always took the same classes so once that changed yeah and did either of you ever feel smothered by the other yeah I moved out (laughs) sorry it's like so funny I said of our room so we had bunk beds at one parent's house our dad's house and then our other our mom's house we shared a room until we were 15 yeah, I think, then. and then I moved out, and a lot of it though was because I was depressed, and I mm-hmm. wanted, like, I was having all of these emotions and feelings, and I mean, I mean, any teenager was dealing with those things, but right. there's like a darkness to it that I, I'm when I get in a space like that, I want to be like alone and by myself, and so that was part of it too, like, yeah. So I plot, and that's why I went to Iowa too, so I didn't want to be like Maria's sister because in high school Maria was always. I remember someone was like, Maria is so fun. Anna, you're so reserved. <laughs> I like fully don't remember us being was, different. I know, but it happened. And um, so our our then best friend made these DVDs for our birthdays, our senior year of like all our friends saying nice things about us. And I, the whole time I was just like, oh, they all, I think they all like Maria better. Like, I'm pretty sure. Maria was just more fun than I was. That's how I felt at least. I was so anxious. Well, and... I remember with those DVDs, it was just my shitty ex like the whole time yeah but like people would <laughs> no but, but it wasn't okay that's um, not yeah and Whatever. anyways regardless i i wanted to do my own thing and i really did until i like my first semester college i really did like thrive socially it was just academically i wasn't doing anything i just really like was struggling with procrastinating and things like that and so eventually we went to the same college the first three semesters of college i went to school in iowa and then i transferred to a community college for my semester um what's it called like when you take a semester or oh your like leave of absence my leave of absence mm-hmm. i but i still did go to class my mom lost her heart is like was very much so like yeah you can take a leave of absence but you're gonna be going to classes during that. i was like okay <laughs> so at community college and then i transferred to maria's school which i had gotten into originally but so maria when did your uh, bipolar begin to present itself uh how long after a, anna's I, a year and some change yeah so and how I, did it present itself oh my god yeah just <laughs> every everything so long um so yeah so a year uh the spring of 2017 when i was 23 2018 2018 2018 when i was when we were 23 um i so yeah so it, the first so it was a hypomanic episode we think because it was very long and so and there's no psychosis and there's no psychosis and so my the first symptoms I had was uh like speeding up is like how they talk about it so like my energy level was just like super high I wasn't sleeping more than like six hours a night which is really unusual for me um and speaking quickly speaking quickly even, even quicker, quicker yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but yeah so yeah speaking well actually it's it's funny because 
the weekend before I really started like ramping up, um, I had gone to a frisbee tournament we had, and I had spent like the whole weekend kind of like yelling from the sidelines and stuff like that. So I actually didn't have a voice for like a few days when mm. I was first ramping up. So yeah, I was on set for a horror film, and so I was shooting nights, and um, so I was like, I would come to work at like. 12 p.m. and leave at like 1 a.m. and um so yeah so I would like write on a notepad whenever I had to like communicate to anybody I was like oh but like still like very excited and like kind of charming and like just doing a lot of stuff like just being really like out there like I like got into a lot of like like friendly like arguments with people and like made a lot of friends on set um but yeah and then, and then my other like first symptom I would say was like hypersexuality which is like Thank you for mentioning that because yeah. a lot of people are too ashamed to talk about it. And I've gotten so yeah. many, uh, I've experienced be- it before. And mm-hmm. people who have written to me or filled out surveys, mm-hmm. they they talk about it. And again, like like buying things, you can't see it at the time. And it, yeah. and it, there's really lasting consequences yes. to it. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and it's really hard to talk about. Like you're saying, like I, when I first... I was that was one of the things I was like the very most ashamed of after I became depressed. Um, but anyways, so I and was during it because you hid it from like our family too. Did yeah. you hide it from Anna? Uh, she minimized it. Yeah, because I got really nervous about it. She, and she doesn't like hearing about like sexual. Well, I stuff. didn't. Yeah, she's but more open. To it was now. more so like traveling to to people's houses that she didn't know, and I'm like. I'm just very cautious about stuff like that in general. And, and honestly, that was really hard for Maria. I didn't want was my, me not judging her. Yeah. And and there was like some yeah yeah. But anyway, so um, I are, are you comfortable uh, sharing um, what it looked like? Totally. It, okay. Yeah. So I was I had been dating the same guy for five and a half years at that point, and we had started talking about maybe moving to Los Angeles. I was living in D.C. at the time, and I it hadn't been going well. I think we both kind of realized that it was like our time was kind of coming up. And during that week that I started speeding up, I was like, I think I'm queer. I think I'm polyamorous. I don't like I, I was like excited about it. I didn't think that anything like wrong was going on. And so I broke up with him. You mean medically, not morally. Medically. (laughs) And even morally, I was like, this is just who I am. Like, I guess I've just been hiding it for myself. And I'm still queer. Um, So that stopped. You're you're saying that that you are still queer today? Yeah. Okay. I didn't know if you meant that you were saying that to yourself back then or or today. Yeah. Great clarification. And so I came out to him. We we broke up like in one day after like five and a half years together. Um, And I like hooked up with a guy that I met on set. Um, and so that was like the beginning of it. And by hooked up, I mean, like I, I had like sex with him. Um, and then it was just like a string of like 20, maybe like one night stand slash like several night stands with like strangers from like Tinder and Bumble. Guys and, like, named that Matt I met. from Virginia. Guys yeah. named Matt from Virginia was my Mostly. like, my, my pocket. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, despite being queer. And Do you have your own zip code named after you? Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. yeah. Arlington, worst, Virginia. Ugh. They all know me. In they the all. worst state too. Ugh, Virginia. Um, but yeah, so anyway, so I had a car. I bought a car for $14,000, which isn't that much, but I like had never had a car before. So that was like 
the spending came in and I was able to like get to strangers' houses a lot easier with that. Um, so yeah, and it was a lot of one night stands, a lot of unprotected sex because not that I wanted that, but like the guys just like wouldn't use condoms or like it didn't matter to you it did matter to me but i couldn't convince them to do it and i this is so it's before the me too or no it was like in the middle of the me too movement as well and honestly like there's a lot of sexual trauma around it even at the time because i would ask them to use condoms and they just like wouldn't and i had never had sex with anybody else before because i I just had been dating the same guy the whole time so i wasn't used to advocating for myself in those situations and i didn't I didn't really feel like I could leave if they didn't do it. So, yeah, it was just like I got. Um, Where, yeah. Was the the yeah. feeling like you couldn't leave? Was it um, emotionally you felt like they would be upset, or were you physically worried about your safety? That uh, it was more or... like emotionally and like people pleasing, I think, okay. and like feeling like like I was just like I felt like I was like very charismatic and like persuasive and it was like really frustrating to me that I couldn't convince these guys to do something that I felt like was in both of our best interests. Mm-hmm. So anyways, I got like a few like STIs and stuff like that and like I had to deal with it for like way long after the summer was mm-hmm. even over. So I was manic from March 2018 to July 2018. So like hypomanic that was like a, a really long time and those were like my main symptoms um during the the hypersexuality yeah. were there flashes or moments where you were saying this is this is not the real me something is is going wrong or was it just a you know yeah this is this is the new me this is awesome that's how it felt but also because anna had, had bipolar disorder and we are twins and it's a very genetic disease, like yeah. as I'm sure you know. Mm-hmm. I knew that there was a possibility that I might also be bipolar, despite never having been depressed before. And so when it first all started happening, like the first week or so, I like told my mom that I thought, "Oh, Gracie, come here, come here." <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I was like, I think I should keep an eye on this. Like, I don't think that I'm like becoming manic because it didn't look at all like Anna's. Mm-hmm. Um. It wasn't, like, so rapid, and it wasn't, like, immediately dangerous to myself mm-hmm. um, in the same way. And so, um, yeah, and my mom was, like, really concerned, and she, like, <laughs> called, like, uh, my, like, health insurer at the time and stuff like that. No, I called them. You called them. Okay, okay, got yeah. it. Yeah. We tried, we tried to get her hospitalized. That was just our um, frame of dealing with it. Mm-hmm. That's what we did with me. And so, we're like, well, she's not in the hospital that something's wrong but you can only get someone hospitalized as an adult if they're danger to themselves or others and i wasn't yeah yeah (laughs) um so yeah so i went to see a psychiatrist and he gave me seroquel but a really low dosage and i took it um because he was like oh it's for sleep and so i which is what i actually still take now for um some antipsychotic and sleep aid and i took it and i like almost passed out in the shower so i was like Fuck this. this isn't for me. Fuck this. I'm just going to like keep yeah. going. I'm not hurting anybody. And I don't think I'm bipolar. Um, and then when I uh, came down, that's when I like, that's when I was like, oh shit, like I probably am bipolar. That's what was going on this whole summer. Yeah. Yeah. And so what was your plan of action then once you had some clarity around that? Yeah. So um, the way that I came down was I was on a shoot um for the voice actually in virginia again and i got really bad strep throat 
um, to the point where, like, my throat was closing up. Um, and I hadn't treated it because I was, like, manic and, like, ah, whatever. Like, still having fun. I'm still got energy. Yeah. Like, no big deal. Um, and so I was on the set and I, like, couldn't even, like, lift, like, pelican cases. Like, I couldn't do anything that I was, like, supposed to be doing on set. And, like, I couldn't really, like, drive cars because I was, like, so sick. I couldn't really eat. Not that I was eating, like, a ton at the time anyways um, because of the mania. And uh, so, yeah, so I, like, finally got home. I got the other production assistant to, like, drive us home. I returned the car, and I, like, my mom was, like, you need to go to urgent care, like, for the strep throat. And I think she was, like, in the back of her mind was, like, oh, finally, like, we'll get we'll get her, like, hospitalized or whatever. Um, and so I did, and they are like, well, you need to go into the hospital for observation because your, your airways are so closed. And so I was in the hospital for a few days, and that's when I came down, and because um, I like couldn't do anything, and mm-hmm. I was just like sitting there, um, and and maybe it's just like my time, anyways, because I've been going on for so long. And I was like talking to Anna, and I was like, "Oh, my like body image is just like really off, and I feel like I look like scrawny, and like and I'm, like that's not how I felt at all. Like when I was man, like, I was like, oh, I'm hot shit, um, which was being reinforced by like all these guys in Virginia named Matt." And, <laughs> um, yeah, and so, anyways, so Anna was like, oh, it sounds like maybe you might be depressed, kiddo. And I was like, a light bulb went off. And I was like, oh, my God, if I'm depressed now, I was probably yeah. manic all summer, huh? And yeah. she's like, maybe. And yeah. so then I, when, you're, when I was depressed, I really wanted to get help because it feels awful. So that's when I went to go see a psychiatrist, and he got me on a mood stabilizer and Seroquel. But it still took a few months to, to get the right dosage and come yeah. out of it, yeah. And when do you both feel like you hit a level of manageability that you were able to kind of come together and mm-hmm. and have clarity on it and feel optimism about yeah. moving forward, yeah. if if at all? Yeah, it was when so. Maria was depressed, probably because yeah. when she was manic. Which totally, totally valid. This is just how mania works. She did not want to hear that she something was wrong. So I was like, you know, I think it might be bipolar. And she said that's impossible. It made me feel, I don't remember if she said this or just me hearing at this, but it made me feel like my life was like her worst case scenario. Mm. Like having bipolar disorder was the worst thing that could happen. Right. Because like, I associate it so strong with hospitalization. Right. Yeah. And it was, I mean, it is tough sometimes. I mean, it's not, she's not wrong. It would be nice to not, you know, always have that in the back of your mind. It's like, when's the next episode going to be? But has, has anybody <laughs> ever uh, had somebody say to them, I think you're manic right now? And they, they just kind of like, go, like, Oh my God. You know what? I think you're right. I'm going to make like, an appointment with a psychiatrist and just like you, get it figured yeah, out. You exactly. made an excellent point. Yeah. Oh my God. Wait, so when you, much. When yeah. you say it that way, yeah, it really does. I'm going to slow down and really mill that and mull that over. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to just fast forward to the depressive episode, I think. Like, let's go yeah. for it. Yeah. yeah. Let's stop feeling this way for sure. Yeah. And, and I think that's too, like, when it was like, I think after both of us had gone through the experience of being the bipolar, like being the manic one or being the depressed one and then also being the one watching it, we, I, we had a lot more empathy for how hard it was on the other side because when I was manic, I was like, this is easy for you. It's hard for me. Oh I'm the God. one going right. through something. Yeah. Oh my God. And even for like a year afterwards, I was like, listen, if it was like everyone in, in my in our family gets is like, fine, like is you know, gets off scot-free and I'm the one stuck with this, like, not in the time of thinking horrible diagnosis, but this, you know, this 
chronic illness that mm-hmm. does affect your life. And there was a lot of feeling with the rest of our family, not such as Maria, of being like, well, Anna's mental health, we all now get have a right to hear gonna, about like, it, an eye on it, to check mm-hmm. up on it, to like... And this is after like a whole childhood of like basically feeling like no one gave a shit how we felt. So yeah. it felt like super hyper hypocritical to me as well, personally. Yeah. And then, but then once I saw, once I, once I was the one who saw, was having like a, watching Maria go through mania, so helpless, so powerless. And honestly, it felt bad if I had to like set boundaries around time with her, even though she was going through such a hard time because we would get in these awful fights or... Yeah. Or she would just do things that were really scary to me or um, just... For instance? Well, yeah, like leaving to go see someone or, or hearing about those things, I guess, like hearing about the guys that she was seeing or... To her, it was all, all of it was very funny and none of it was funny to me, you yeah. know? And it was just weird. In, hi- like specific, in hindsight, there you was... remember like a specific night or something like that? Yeah, well, there was this one night... This wasn't scary, but it was just so not Maria. We were going out with like one of my work friends and some of our friends from college. <laughs> Sorry, she's <laughs> after a specific night, and and like I was Maria was just like Maria is shaking her head. I know, and embar- so embarrassed. She's cringing. I know. I'm yeah. sorry. It, it was like Maria was like flirting with like my work friend. And I was like, it's like my best friend from work, and I had all I had the job. And, like one of my main goals was to like make friends at the job, so I had some like. Friends in D.C. And to be fair, my friend was also flirting with Maria. Was this your housewarming party? No, that's a different night. Uh. That was that was really early. I didn't notice that it was weird what happened. At, she was just flirting with all the guys at my housewarming party. And I thought, oh, she's just single. And it turned the next yeah. day, our friend um, who was there when I was manic and hospitalized was like, do you think Maria might be manic? And I was like, oh, you're probably right. Oh, no. And that's when I called um, like our health insurance and was like, maybe she can be hospitalized. And they're like, no, she can't. Anyway, so it was that night she was flirting and like dancing with us, and I was like, "Hey, like, do you mind like just like this like the one person like maybe like could you not try to hook up with my friend from work?" And Maria just like that is so like unfair like no, and I was like, and I was like just like and I was like just like, oh, like and I just like left the like the dance floor and just, like sat by myself and I was like this is like not so fun like this is not exactly how I wanted things to be going and I felt again like the twin who was like so uptight and Maria was so fun and charismatic mm-hmm. and and so it really made me like just affect how I looked at myself and I was like it's just not healthy for me to really be around Maria as much as I want to be for her during this time because I start like looking down on myself but also really trying to control her behavior and number one you can't when someone's manic like I don't even know what you could do or like general or in general but, but, but yeah. in general yes. you can't yeah. exactly that's you what i'm saying like, in general you cannot control and that was the biggest lesson and like was you cannot control a grown person's behavior period like it just is not possible if it was marie would have been in the hospital she would have got her bipolar diagnosis and it would have lasted a week instead of four months but that's not what happened and yeah. so when she was depressed it was much easier for me to be there for her because she we weren't getting into fights and she honestly remembers and, and, it and frankly the person <laughs> talks less when they're depressed oh, we should yeah. just watch tv together again right. it was so nice it was like i miss it and maria remembers that i was like such a savior like all, like so nice and went out of my way it wasn't i was there for you the normal amount of time but like we just were, were hanging out again and it was so easy for me because i was so happy to have my sister back again mm-hmm. like listening and talking and i was really sad that she was so sad but that was i think when 
we kind of reconvene and and you know we've talked we've doing the podcast as well we've had a lot of these like tough conversations about things that happened when both of us are manic that we've tried we started to like forgive each other more for i think yeah like the hospital stuff i had a lot of resentment about the fact that i went to the hospital and maria got just like live her life for four months but now it's like okay well even if it wasn't even if there was a better case scenario which i don't know that there is it, that's not what happened it right. did happen we're both safe and like healthy now and everyone was doing the best they could at the time with the information that they had yeah. so yeah. is, is there uh, anything else you guys would like to share before we uh wrap up um let's see your, your podcast is called bipolar by coastal yes. yeah and so it's a mixture of just the two of us doing episodes or having guests on and interviewing them and we had ellen forney on um who is a bipolar graphic novelist and is our personal hero yeah um and yeah and we're like doing we're gonna, we're gonna have a bunch of guests on with add and adhd for adhd or ADAD, add awareness month in october um so yeah it's really fun and they're like hour long a little bit shorter mm-hmm. episodes. a little bit shorter now yeah yeah, yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for for coming on and oh opening up about uh, all this stuff, and you know, uh, covering some some new territory for us. No, yeah. well, thank you thank for you having, having us, us on. This is such an honor. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Mm-hmm. So uh, go go check out their stuff. Enjoyed talking to them. Okay, picture this: it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Let's dive into some surveys. This is from the Love Survey filled out by uh, ladies and gentlemen, prepare to be disenlightened. And they write, I love that I'm about to, he writes, I'm a, well, I guess it's a he. Uh, I love that I'm about to go to prison, but, but I'm doing everything I can to be a better person while I'm waiting. I don't know why I assumed it was uh, a guy. I love that I know my pup will be so excited to see me in two years or so. Uh, from now and I'm doing my best to be okay with leaving him that's probably more a fear than a love but I'm trying honestly Paul ugh, I'm trying to love I do a good job some days but today's not the day other than my dog I don't love many things I'm scared thank you for sharing that and um, yeah I've I have never Never been locked up. Actually, I got locked up for three hours for underage drinking when I was 19, but that hardly that hardly compares. Um, why, why am I comparing everything to my life? Because it's all about me. 
No, I guess I want to, I, I, I'm always in the podcast looking for ways to, to let people know that they're, that they're not alone and they're not freaks. This is from The Babysitter, filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself lesbian, and then in parentheses, not a pedo. Uh, she identifies as gay. She's in her 20s. And she writes, when I first started babysitting at 12 years old, I would have intrusive thoughts about raping the baby boys I would watch. Now I am 21 and watch a four-year-old girl who I see a lot of myself in. I have the desire to become too close to her, but it's not sexual. But it reminds me of emotional incest. It's like I'm doing one of those inner child meditations where you hug your younger self, but I pretend she is me. She is so worried about being good for me and will clean up her baby brother's toys as a present to me and begs me to let me to let her help me clean. I live vicariously through telling her she is good, that I'm proud, that she is seen, helpful, and that I appreciate her. I give her opportunities to feel like she's helping me out, and then I thank her profusely so that she feels like she made a difference and I hope it helps her self-esteem. I babysit her overnight sometimes, and I want so badly for her to sleep in my bed and for us to cuddle, in parentheses, not sexual, but like how I would sleep with my grandma when visiting. I fantasize that her parents don't come home and that I just become her mom, and it's just us two. I feel guilty because she has a super adorable baby brother, and I only care about her to this extent. When I was 18, I babysat a newborn and would let him suck on my finger or my cheek. He was a newborn, so he probably thought it was his mom's nipple or something. It would give me tingles in my body like how sex does. I think it positively affected me because I just non-judgmentally and curiously thought and thought and thought about this until intrusive uh thought of, and thought about this until intrusive thoughts about baby boys I would watch never came back. Uh, I feel relieved that I am no longer feeling intrusive thoughts and that I know that it was not an actual desire. I feel fondness and longing for that little girl all the time. She is just so sweet and I feel like I wouldn't damage her as much as her mom would. I feel grateful that I know that this is all somewhat diluted and that I am still connected to reality. I am aware that this whole thing is about me and my childhood. You are such a self-aware person. Uh, I'm always worried that I am damaging the little girl by being too emotionally invested. I have no idea if how I think I am helping is helping because I'm doing it because my opinion is that our mothers accidentally damaged us in the same way, which sounds egotistical. Therefore, it probably is damaging her. I'm afraid that when I eventually leave, leave this job and she will feel abandoned by me. I feel innocent, but I know this is about my trauma or something. Thank you for sharing all of that. You seem like, as I said, a very, very self-aware person. And I think a great example of how intellectually and emotionally we can have two different things going on at the same time. This is uh, from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Chewy's Beard. Uh, he identifies as straight. He's in his 30s. He was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. 
He's never been sexually abused. Uh, he's been emotionally abused. He writes, my ex-wife made me feel as if I was the worst father and husband on the planet to the point that even after being apart for four years now, I still question my ability to be an effective father for my children and feel as if I am failing them all the time. She also had an affair that ended our marriage and for a long time I blamed myself. Isn't that fucking silly? Any positive experiences? I do have positive memories. However, I've blocked out most of it as a coping mechanism because it just makes the guilt I have for myself magnified. Darkest thoughts. I have a crippling fear of mortality. When I think about it, I can't move. I can't breathe. The weirdest part of it is that I am a person of faith albeit non-traditional, and do honestly believe that our consciousness continues on. But damn it, if I don't get thrown into a spiral of despair when I consider the notion that this is all I am. Darkest Secrets I am a slob and I don't know why. I tend to hoard garbage. My car will fill up with empty cans, etc., to the point where there is no room for passengers. I don't know why I am this way. I cannot explain it, and I feel like the worst person because of it. Why the fuck is it so hard for me to pick up a goddamn can and throw it away? It's become an issue with my partner to the point that she has told me to get help or we won't survive. This has been an issue all of my life, and I wish I knew why I have this. I truly cannot explain it. For whatever reason, I don't think about it. I see a mess and keep moving on to something else that I'm focused on. My brain does not register it. I also believe that I am undiagnosed on the autism spectrum and worry that because of my age, it's too late to make an accurate diagnosis. Yes, I know it's up to a professional to do so. I cannot handle overstimulation. I'm an anxious. I'm anxious any time I'm in a busy space, not even crowded, just busy. We have four children, and when they're playing, it's hard for me not to become overwhelmed with everything going on around me. It's as if the door for information going into my brain is stuck open and I hate it every day. I've been diagnosed as ADHD twice, once as a child and again when I was 26. I'm about to turn 40. I'm afraid of medications because I often feel less than who I am. Not that meds are bad, they just scare me. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I am kind of weird here. I view sex as sacred between two souls. So honestly, I don't really have any beyond just being with my partner. You are a monster. You are a monster. Wanting intimacy and closeness. Wanting sex to be something sacred. Uh... What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want to tell my partner that I'm so sorry for being so scatterbrained and a mess, that I love her and our family to the point where it makes me sad sometimes that I let them down. What, if anything, do you wish for? Self-acceptance and the ability to be aware of a mess and get rid of it. Have you shared these things with others? Parts, yes, but afraid to go deeper because of judgment and embarrassment. How do you feel after writing these things down? I'm not sure. A touch freeing mixed with shame. I don't like this part of me. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Do something before it's too late. Don't let someone else dictate how you feel about yourself. You are important to this world. 
And if someone doesn't want to see that, they can fuck off. Amen, brother. A fucking men. And I'm sorry that you're feeling stuck. You sound like a really nice guy that that is, is like you said, just feeling overwhelmed. And um, you don't have to be alone with that. You do not have to be alone with that. This is an email that I got from Shilpa, and they write, My attempts to reach your number always resulted in an unavailable message, question mark. This is something that I was not going to reveal publicly, but I am on the run. I've got the, I've got the law nipping at my heels because... This is going to sound silly, but I mailed a letter one time and I reused an envelope. And I know that that's a federal crime. And while nobody is coming after me, I want to get a jump on them. So I've got a series of safe houses around the country. I don't know why, but they're all next door to each other, which seems like an oversight. And so I moved from house to house. And a lot of times those messages, uh, they fall between the cracks. And I apologize that I didn't get back to you, but I, I hope for whatever reason you're trying to get a hold of me, that we can get our project off the ground and you and I can really become the friends that we're supposed to be. Maybe you'll move into one of my safe houses with me. This is from the psych ward experiences filled out by uh, Sad Girl, and uh, she's in her 20s, and she was hospitalized for being manic and suicidal, uh, and she writes, I walked into the emergency room at 12 a.m. after everyone I had called told me I needed help. I thought I was already dying, so I thought I would speed up the process. I was so heavily medicated at the hospital with heaven knows what there were that what that heaven knows what that there were days I had to be wheeled from my bed to the bathroom. I was there over Thanksgiving. I didn't realize it was Thanksgiving until they served us a puny Thanksgiving meal for lunch and someone said happy Thanksgiving. I was devastated. All my hard work to get out of the hospital beforehand was practically wasted because, quote, no doctors were available near Thanksgiving. The visit helped only to scare me away from being suicidal ever again. I was so elated when I got out that I told a stranger who lived near me, hey, I just got out of a mental hospital. I still feel embarrassed about that and luckily haven't seen the neighbors since. Thank you for sharing that. Oh my God, so many naturally awfulsome moments in psych ward experiences with people. And then uh, this is from the Back in Time survey. Uh, and these are various people's responses to the uh, question, pick a positive moment in your day, use all your senses. What did you see, feel, smell, and think? And this person writes, I felt connection when the three-year-old I nanny 
rested her head on my leg when I was reading to her before bed. It also comforts my inner child because I wanted physical touch and attention and to not feel like I had to beg for attention growing up. That is really sweet. Someone else writes, This morning watching trashy reality TV in bed, and my tiny black cat came up to snuggle. She curled up with her little paws on my arm and laid her head down to rest as I gave her her favorite rubs right between her eyes. I felt grateful for a moment to have that connection with another being, to just exist together in bed on a Saturday morning. Someone else writes, It smelled like this summer as I walked by Joshua Peck in the park today. I thought to myself, hey, an actual real-life human I know that listens to the mental illness happy hour. Uh, What a a sweet man he is. And if you haven't listened to the episode where he was a guest, give it a listen. He is, we had a great conversation. Um, And then someone else writes, I walk around a lake most mornings. Looking at the mist on the lake and feeling the crisp air that's finally arrived, it finally feels like the weather is changing after months of humid and sweaty walks. I felt relief at the weather change and reminded that things keep changing and can hopefully change for me too. I love that. I love that. I mentioned a uh, couple of weeks ago that I wrote a little piece of music for, for guitar that I wanted to share with you guys, and so I thought I'd uh, combine it with uh, a list I wrote for things that I am thankful for. So uh, I'm going to roll that, and before that, I just want to say this is a tough time of year between Thanksgiving and the holidays and New Year's and Uh, I'll be taking December off and running best of episodes. Uh, So I'll see you in January. But in the meantime, be nice to yourself. You're uniquely positioned to be your own best friend. So why would you talk to yourself like your worst enemy, said the pot to the kettle? (laughs) Anyway, here are Here are things that I am thankful for. And uh, never forget that you are not alone. And thanks for listening. I am thankful that I have the use of my arms and legs, that I have a place to live, and I don't have to worry about where my next meal is coming from. I'm thankful for the feeling of love and emotional safety I have in my relationship with my girlfriend. I'm thankful for Gracie's excitement about life. Gracie's my dog. Thankful for my friends. I'm grateful for the laughter at my Sunday night poker game with my comedian friends who I've known for decades. I'm grateful for the depth, emotion, and details that you guys, the listeners, pour into the surveys and how they help me and other people with their issues. I'm grateful for the guests who trust me and open their souls and reveal things that are hard to talk about. I'm thankful for the generosity of the donors who help keep the podcast going. I am thankful for Indian food. Not only does it taste amazing, but it reminds me how many spices nature makes and how abundant the world is. I'm thankful for the way Gracie runs to the room after I give her a treat. And it reminds me that this little stray dog that used to try to tunnel her way out of the backyard 
now feels that this is her home. I'm thankful for the ability to speak my truth and to be vulnerable and to let people love me as I am rather than trying to be someone I'm not in the hopes that I'll be accepted because I think that the authentic me is enough. I'm thankful that I found support groups that are helping me grow in the right direction rather than feeling stuck and hopeless. And I'm really thankful for discovering the power of asking for help or admitting that I don't have an answer. 